Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode on hyponatremia, we have with us Dr. Melanie Bamel and Dr. Ed Etchells. Dr. Bamel is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, faculty in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, and faculty for the Emergency Ultrasound Fellowship. The risk of overcorrection trumps our impression that the patient looks a bit dry. I think you just have to resist the natural urge as an emergency doc to give fluids. Dr. Ed Etchells is an internist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. He's the recipient of multiple teaching awards. It's not the fluids that you're running into the bloodstream that's causing the trouble. It's the urine that's running out of the patient's bladder that's causing the trouble. All water can kill these patients. If the urine osmo is less than 100, give DDAVP. Hyponatremia is rampant in our EDs. It's the most common disorder of body fluid and electrolyte balance encountered in clinical practice, and it's found in about 20% of admissions to hospital. It can present with a wide spectrum of symptoms, and it's often difficult to manage. Now, you might be thinking, hyponatremia isn't really a diagnosis, it's just a lab value. That hyponatremia itself doesn't worry me too much in the emergency department. Well, you might be right in thinking that hyponatremia isn't a diagnosis in itself, but alas... There's a clear linear relationship between the serum sodium levels below 135 at the time of admission to hospital and in-hospital mortality. In fact, hyponatremia is an independent predictor of mortality, especially when it's acute, and especially when it's mismanaged in the ED. Most of the hyponatremia that we see is mild and requires little acute therapy. However, overzealous correction of hyponatremia can lead to central pontine myelinolysis and death, while undercorrection can lead to cerebral edema. We need to know when and how to appropriately correct hyponatremia in our patients to avoid this morbidity and mortality. Understanding hyponatremia might even make us better diagnosticians. How? Well, hyponatremia can sometimes give us a clue to a serious life-threatening diagnosis like acute adrenal insufficiency, for example. And if we can learn an easy approach to the differential diagnosis of hyponatremia, then we just might be more likely to nail down some difficult diagnosis and be able to direct our treatment to the underlying cause more readily. So to help us sort through a solid approach to hyponatremia, the best management of hyponatremia that avoids brain explosions in our patients, and a whole slew of practice-changing pearls and pitfalls, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Melanie Bamel, an ED doc who's given amazing informative talks on electrolyte imbalances and whose teaching skills I've been seriously envious of, and Dr. Ed Etchells, our very first internist extraordinaire on EM cases. So welcome, Ed. Thank you for inviting me. And welcome, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's just jump right into our first case, case number one. An 82-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, depression, and alcohol dependence is brought in by her daughter who tells you that her mother's been suffering from flu-like symptoms, which have progressed to vomiting and then lethargy, confusion, and difficulty walking. On exam, she appears stuporous with a heart rate of 110, a BP of 95 over 65, but a normal respiratory rate, temp, and O2 sat. Her GCS is about 12, but otherwise her gross neurologic exam is normal. Her neck is supple, chest is clear, and abdomen's benign. She's on an ACE inhibitor and hydrochlorothiazide for her hypertension and sertraline for her depression. The sodium is 104. The potassium is low as well. So Dr. Bamel, what are your initial immediate thoughts on this patient? What are you going to do with this patient who's 82 years old, history of hypertension, depression, alcohol, a little bit tachycardic, a little bit hypotensive, and her sodium is 104? So this is a tough scenario. She sounds really sick. And my first priority would be her hemodynamic instability. I think that trumps the the worry that you may overcorrect the sodium by giving some fluids. So I would start with a fluid bolus of 500 cc's to try and uh, normalize her pressure and go from there. And Dr. Etchells? Yeah, I completely agree. 
The serum sodium is obviously very low. The patient is awake. She's not having any seizures, so it's not a neurologic emergency. So the priority is restore adequate circulating volume. I, too, would give intravenous crystalloid. I'd probably give her Ringer's lactate. Ah, Ringer's lactate. Very interesting. Okay. And why do you choose Ringer's over normal saline? Because it's closer in tonicity to her own current tonicity. Sodium concentration in Ringer's is 128. Mm-hmm. The sodium concentration in normal saline is 154. So Ringer's is more isotonic to the patient. So you're going to get less of a sudden rise in your serum sodium concentration with that strategy. Okay, so you want to slowly correct that sodium, and so Ringer's would be a slower way of doing it. Ringer's will have less of an immediate effect on the serum sodium concentration. So the first couple pearls are the hemodynamic instability of the patient should trump the worry of overcorrecting the sodium too quickly. So you can go ahead and give a small bolus of fluid. Second pearl is you might want to consider giving Ringer's lactate to fluid resuscitate the patient rather than normal saline because it's more isotonic with the patient. So we're going to get into how fast to correct the sodium and all the details of that. So this patient has a really low sodium of 104, so you'd expect some symptomatology from such a low level. Dr. Etchells, what are the clinical manifestations of hyponatremia in general, and at what low levels of serum sodium can we expect these clinical manifestations? For example, if a patient has a sodium of 130, should we expect an altered level of awareness, like 120, 110? What's the general sense? So in general, it depends on two things. It's the severity of the hyponatremia and the rapidity by which it develops. So if it develops slowly, the patient will have less severe neurologic symptoms. They might have a headache. They might be confused. They might be irritable. They might be somnolent. If it's acute hyponatremia, then they're much more likely to have cerebral edema with seizures because there'd be no time for the brain to try and osmotically regulate the intracellular volume. So it's kind of like the analogy of a, a subdural. If you've got a chronic subdural, you can adapt and basically it might have no neurologic symptoms. But if it's acute, you're definitely going to have some neurologic symptoms. I think that's absolutely right. So... It depends on the chronicity, the absolute level of sodium, and the patient's overall health. All right, so headache, irritability, lethargy, confusion, disorientation, agitation, unstable gait, falls. These are some of the kind of vague symptoms that we see in lots of elderly patients especially. But in a younger patient, if you see any of these things, hyponatremia should be on your radar. And Dr. Bamel, in this case in particular, what would be the most likely cause of the hyponatremia? I think there's probably, like in most cases, multiple causes for hyponatremia in this patient. There's probably an element of dehydration. Uh, certainly, uh, her alcohol abuse can also cause a component of the of the hyponatremia. The medications that she's on, the hydrochlorothiazide and the sertraline, for example, can also cause SIDH and lower the sodium as well. So multifactorial. Okay. So sort of a mixed hypovolemia, hyponatremia, as well as SIADH caused by the medication she's on. I agree with the analysis. Uh, I think the important point is the patient's hypovolemic because she's on hydrochlorothiazide, but she's still able to continue to drink water. So hypovolemia prevents the kidneys from filtering water, which is the first step to excreting water. So that's why patients who are hypovolemic get hyponatremic because they continue to drink water and then they can no longer excrete it. So that's a key concept there. It's not the hypovolemia itself that causes the hyponatremia. It's the patient who's hypovolemic, can't get rid of the water, and then drinks more free water that causes the hyponatremia. Plus she takes sertraline that causes SIDH. I think the other clue in the case is that she lives alone She's elderly and there's some alcohol abuse. So patients who are malnourished, they also have an impaired ability to excrete free water. So I think those are the key contributing factors here. Am I allowed to be controversial and stir up? So, you know, as you know, all internists are anal retentive. And I don't like the term dehydration because I find it confusing. Because actually this patient has too much water in her, her body. She's not dehydrated. She's overhydrated. She's also hypovolemic. So I always make my residents say... The patient is hypovolemic and hyponatremic. She's not dehydrated. Okay, got it. So water is evil. Uh, That is a key, that is principle number two in these cases. All water can kill these patients. All right, so we'll get into the details of how water can be evil in these patients. 
The approach to hyponatremia that we all learned in medical school, I found a bit confusing, but it was so long ago, I can't really, really remember any of it. Dr. Etchells, can you suggest a simple, systematic approach to hyponatremia that our listeners would find useful in the emergency department? Sure. So, you know, step one is always ABCs. So if the patient has a neurologic emergency where they're having seizures or coning, you've got to deal with that. And I think we're going to talk about that a little later in the podcast. So I'm going to assume that the patient is not having seizures and is not comatose. Then principles are very straightforward. Number one, defend intravascular volume. The way to do that, you can send urine osmolality and urine sodium, but while those are cooking, just do postural vital signs. If the patient has a postural drop, you're obligated to give them intravenous crystalloid. I would again suggest Ringer's lactate because it's going to be more isotonic to the patient. Just a sec there. So some of our listeners, I'm sure, are thinking, well, postural vitals, I got rid of those a long time ago because there's studies that a good percentage of elderly patients will have a postural drop normally and that it's not really going to help me. Give us your argument of why we should be doing postural vitals. Postural drops are not normal. They are a sign that the patient has moderate hypovolemia and therefore their intravascular volume is at threat. In my view, it's easy to check. You just swing the patient's legs over the side of the emergency room stretcher and you recheck the blood pressure. If there's a 20 millimeter drop, I don't care what happens to the heart rate. I always give the patient 250 cc's of crystalloid and see what happens. Okay, so just to review and then go forward, First, you want to rule out a neurological emergency. Then there's four principles of management. The first one is to maintain adequate intravascular volume. The second one is to prevent worsening hyponatremia. So Correct. How, how do we do that? Yeah, so basically it is impossible for the patient's hyponatremia to get worse if you prevent them from taking water into their body. The human body cannot manufacture water on its own. So the problem in the hospital is that water is not a controlled substance. (laughs) There's nothing stopping a high school volunteer from bringing a 500 milliliter glass of water to the thirsty elderly patient with a serum sodium of 104. So in this situation, I make the patient's NPO, except for medications. I tell them or their loved ones that water will kill them. It's a little dramatic, but it gets their attention. Absolutely. And then from a medical perspective, I write an order that says no D5W, no half-normal saline, no two-thirds in the third, unless approved by Dr. Etchells. And it's impossible for the hyponatremia to get worse. Got it. So we're maintaining adequate intravascular volume, then we're preventing worsening hyponatremia. The next step is to prevent rapid overcorrection. Right. So this is usually... Usually the emergency staff have done the correct thing, which is to defend the intravascular volume. That's always the most important and protect the brain. Then the patient's at risk for rapid overcorrection. Usually this happens in the patients with hypovolemic hyponatremia. So the situation is it's very predictable. They come in hypovolemic. The hypovolemia prevents them from filtering water at the nephron. We do the right thing, which is defend their intravascular volume. That increases their GFR. They can now start filtering water. Then what happens? Well, because you've given them volume, you've turned off their volume-driven ADH secretion. So you reduce or turn off their ADH. And so now the water is excreted very rapidly through the kidney. This is what sets the patients up for rapid overcorrection. It's not the fluids that you're running into the bloodstream that's causing the trouble. It's the urine that's running out of the patient's bladder that's causing the trouble, which is why the monitoring of urine volume is the key to preventing rapid overcorrection. Basically, all I do is I monitor it. If the urine output is more than 100 cc's an hour, I send a stat urine osmolality. If the urine osmolality is now low, the patient's having a water diuresis, they're at risk of overcorrection. Then you treat it with DDAVP. This is the third principle is preventing rapid correction. The key is going to be monitoring the urine output. And then what's the last principle of management of hyponatremia? Principle number four, then you can sit back and look at the cause. Why did this happen to the patient? Because you have to fix the underlying problem or it's going to recur. Got it. So first. To review here, we're going to rule out a neurologic emergency. If there's a neurologic emergency, if they're seizing, if they're coning, if they're comatose, we're going to be pulling out the hypertonic saline, which we'll get to how to do that in a little bit. 
And then the four principles of hyponatremia and emergency doctors, we can usually remember four things anymore. It's kind of hard. Maintain adequate intravascular volume, prevent worsening hyponatremia, prevent rapid overcorrection, and then find the cause. Okay, so we're going to go into detail with all of these. So let's go through all of these one by one, these four principles. Let's start off with the first one, maintaining adequate intravascular volume. Dr. Etchells, you had mentioned how you would manage the hypovolemic patient by assessing their volume status, looking at a postural job, looking at their urine output, maybe giving 250 cc's. What about the hypervolemic patient and the euvolemic patient? First, can you just give us an idea of, at the bedside, how you'd assess whether they're euvolemic or hypervolemic? And what would you do in those three different situations of hypovolemia, euvolemia, and hypervolemia? Sure. Hypervolemia, I look at the JVP. I look for sacral edema. People always forget to look for sacral edema, but a lot of the patients we see don't get out of bed. So the dependent area is the sacrum, not the feet. And of course, looking for pedal and thigh edema. Patients who are hyponatremic and hypervolemic are actually pretty easy to manage. You sodium restrict them, you water restrict them, and you give them diuretics, and the problem deals with itself. They tend not to overcorrect. Then I look for hypovolemia. I look at the JVP. I look at the heart rate, the blood pressure, and the postural blood pressure. I don't care if I miss mild hypovolemia because, as you pointed out, studies are very clear to show that even expert nephrologists cannot tell the difference between euvolemia and mild hypovolemia. It's impossible. So that's what urine electrolytes are for. So I send those off when they come back if I diagnose mild hypovolemia on the urine electrolytes. No problem. If I can't tell the difference, I don't worry about it. I just monitor the patients to make sure they don't become moderately hypovolemic by monitoring their postural blood pressure. One of the challenges we have in the emergency department sometimes is assessing volume status. Uh, Dr. Bamel, can you give us any other tips and tricks on how you assess volume status in the emergency (laughs) department? I use a bedside ultrasound machine. It's really helpful with the uh, clinical gestalt of the patient's volume status. So, for example, you can look at the IVC to see if it's collapsing by more than 50%. And if the width is is less than 1.5 centimeters, you can usually infer that the patient is hypovolemic uh, in the right clinical setting. You can also look at the heart to see if the left ventricle is hyperdynamic, and that can help as well. Okay, great. So if you're skilled at POCUS, then pull out that ultrasound and use it to your advantage to figure out whether these hyponatremic patients are actually euvolemic or hypovolemic. Now, in the case of hyponatremia associated with hypovolemia and a low blood pressure, don't you worry about correcting the sodium too quickly with your aggressive normal saline bolus or hypertonic saline or whatever you're going to use and causing central pontine myelinolysis? Is that something that we should be worrying about when we're treating the hypovolemic, hyponatremic patient? Well, we should always be worried about it, but management of intravascular volume always takes precedence because the brain needs perfusion or it's going to be in trouble. So the other key point is it's extremely difficult to rapidly correct the serum sodium concentration just by giving intravenous normal saline. It always is followed by increased renal perfusion, increased water excretion, through the kidneys, it's the water excretion of the kidneys that causes the rapid overcorrection. So you're never going to go wrong by giving the patient intravenous crystalloid to get their blood pressure to an acceptable level. You should always do that, and you just simply monitor their urine output. As soon as the urine output goes over 100 cc's an hour, send a stat urine osmo. If the urine osmo is low, give DDAVP, the patient will be fine. They will not overcorrect. Okay, so the take-home point there is... In the case of hemodynamic instability, the need for rapid fluid resuscitation overrides the risk of any overly rapid increase in serum sodium concentration. Right. The important thing is just to recognize that eMERGE docs, what we think warrants fluid resuscitation, what an internist thinks warrants fluid resuscitation are a bit, it can be two different things. So I think the important thing to look for is if the patient is hypotensive, then it's worth giving them a, a fluid bolus to try to make them normotensive. But if the patient just looks a bit dry, like they're tachycardic, their mucous membranes are dry, I probably would resist the urge to give fluids in that case because the risk of overcorrection trumps our impression that the patient looks a bit dry. 
Okay, so your trigger would be hypotension to be aggressively fluid resuscitating the patient. Okay, and we should be considering ringers instead of normal saline in these patients. Got it. Okay, so the first principle of hyponatremia management, again, is to maintain adequate intravascular volume by first assessing if the patient is hypovolemic, euvolemic, or hypervolemic using the usual bedside tools and maybe POCUS, and then either giving a 250 cc bolus if you deem them to be hypovolemic, make them NPO and give furosemide if you deem them to be hypervolemic, and do pretty much nothing except monitor them carefully if you deem them to be euvolemic. So now let's move on to the second principle of hyponatremia management, and that is preventing worsening hyponatremia. So Dr. Bamel, how should we prevent worsening hyponatremia in the ED? I think you just have to resist the natural urge as an emergency doc to give fluids. The right thing to do in these patients is to fluid restrict them. So that means, like Dr. Etchell said, making them NPO, saline locking the IV, and just walking away. And I think this is a really important point. And, you know, it's on my list of things that I wish I would have known before I started practice. (laughs) I have a standing bet with my residents when we go and see patients with hyponatremia. And the bet is that I guarantee that there will be 500 milliliters of free fluids within arm's reach of the patient. And I've never lost the bet. There's always 125 cc's of apple juice a big gulp from 7-Eleven in one of those giant water cups that some high school volunteer has brought to the patient's bedside. So I can't overemphasize it. I make the patient's NPO except for medications, and I tell them that water will kill them. Okay. Water is evil, nothing by mouth, and you actually write in the chart, no D5W, no two-thirds, one-third, and no half-normal saline. You got it. All right, so those are the first two principles that we've covered, maintaining adequate intravascular volume and preventing worsening hyponatremia. Let's move on to the third principle, and that is preventing rapid overcorrection. Now, I understand that this involves checking the urine sodium and osmolality, which you mentioned, and I see internists do this often. ED docs, not so often, if rarely, actually. Dr. Etchells, if we're going to do this in the emergency department, we got to keep it simple. How do you suggest we prevent rapid overcorrection of hyponatremia in the ED, and how can getting a urine osmolality and urine sodium help us in this regard? So I know it's not glamorous to check urine osmolality and urine electrolytes, but I cannot overemphasize how important and easy it is. My recommendation is as follows. For the first case who has life-threatening hyponatremia, I would insert a Foley catheter. I would just do urine output monitoring every one hour. I would write an order that says, if urine output greater than 100 cc's per hour, send stat fresh urine for urine, osmo, and sodium. And here's how to interpret the results. If the urine osmo is less than 100, give DDAVP. Simple. That's it. If the urine osmolality is less than 100, give DDAVP. What if it's more than 100? Well, then you can sit tight because the patient's not going to overcorrect too rapidly. But if the next hour they put out Another 100 cc's or more of urine, send another urine osmo. If it's less than 100, give DDAVP. So again, the third principle in management of hyponatremia is to prevent rapid overcorrection. How do you do this? You stick in a Foley catheter. If it's more than 100 cc's per hour of urine, you send off a fresh urine osmolality. If the urine osmolality is less than 100, you give one microgram of DDAVP, making sure that the patient's fluid restricted. And if it's over 100 and you just sit tight. Next, Dr. Bamel is going to talk about the general guide for the rate at which we should be correcting the hyponatremia. I like the, the new rule of sixes because it's easy to remember. I would be really conservative and use a correction limit of six. There's really no safe limit, but six is a nice number because if you overshoot by a couple of millimoles, then you're not going to end up in trouble. Uh, This rule was created by the authors of a paper by Stearns et al. called Treating Profound Hyponatremia, a Strategy for Controlled Correction. And it goes six a day makes sense for safety and six in six hours for severe symptoms and then stop. Okay, so if someone has severe symptoms... You don't want to go more than six millimoles per liter in the first six hours. And if someone does not have severe symptoms, then six millimoles per liter in the first day. I agree with that. Really, there's no rush. As long as the patient's awake and talking to you, 
Nothing bad will happen to them unless you let them correct too quickly or unless you let it go lower. So I think six is a reasonable number, eight's a reasonable number. You would not want to go faster than 12. Then you're taking chances. Our tendency is, is to overcorrect, right? So that's why I like the rule of sixes and it's a little rhyme and something that's easy to remember because I do find when you read a lot of the literature, some people quote eight, some people quote 10, and I've seen up to 12. So, mm-hmm. And there really is no safe correction limit. So six is a really nice conservative number to go by. So the last of the four principles of hyponatremia management is ascertaining the cause of the hyponatremia. Dr. Bamel, how do you suggest we figure out what the cause is? I know that sometimes it's not that important that we know exactly what the cause is, but from an ED perspective, how do you try and sort it out? I'm not very good at keeping lists of things in my brain, so I just come to it in a more organic way by looking at each section of the chart. So first I start by looking at the chief complaint, and the most common causes of hyponatremia that come to mind are uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or gastro-type symptoms, which cause hypovolemic, hyponatremic, reduced PO intake from anorexia or um, drinking a lot of booze, aka beer potomania, can also cause hyponatremia because you don't actually have enough solute to excrete the relative increase in, in water that you're consuming. And pain. Pain is a really big one. And pain can be from any cause, uh, including something as simple as constipation can cause euvolemic hyponatremia. Uh, Then I move on to the medications. There's a whole list of medications that cause SIDH. I think the big one to look out for uh, that we've mentioned is a thiazide diuretic. For some reason, some people are just more sensitive to it than others. Uh, Then I would look at the past medical history and see if they're got a history of heart failure, renal failure, liver failure. These are all causes of hypervolemic hyponatremia. I would also look for certain types of cancer like lung cancer, which can cause ectopic ADH secretion. And finally, I would look at their labs and see, for example, is the glucose elevated, which can make the sodium look a lot lower than it actually is. And if you're really smart, you'll maybe notice an elevated potassium that may signal adrenal insufficiency. And for bonus points only for bonus points. You may want to look to see if the patient's had an elevated TSH somewhere down the line because that can also cause hyponatremia. But um, I don't think that's super helpful for us in the emergency room. You had mentioned two diagnoses that I just want to concentrate on for a second here. These are two diagnoses that we should always keep in the back of our minds when it comes to hyponatremia. That's hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency. Now, the clinical presentation of severe hypothyroidism, I find relatively easy to remember, but I find it hard to remember how adrenal insufficiency presents and what we should be looking for. Can you just give our listeners a quick run through of when we should suspect adrenal insufficiency in the emergency department? Sure. So primary hypoadrenalism, that's a destruction of the adrenal gland. So those patients have a high ACTH. So you would see that in a patient who's hyperpigmented. They have hypovolemia. They might be hypotensive, they're vomiting, and the clue is that they're also hyponatremic with hyperkalemia. Okay? Secondary or hypopituitary hypoadrenalism is a really tough diagnosis. So whenever I see a patient who's hyponatremic, I sit back and I ask myself, am I missing pituitary disease? Because those patients are not hyperkalemic and they are not hyperpigmented. So the only clue is hyponatremia. So there, if I see a patient who's hyponatremic, I see no explanation, and they have a low blood pressure for no good reason, then I ask myself, am I missing hypopituitary hypoadrenalism? That includes the patients who are on chronic steroids or chronic inhaled steroids who are adrenally suppressed. So we need to think about adrenal insufficiency in the patient with hyponatremia and hyperkalemia, who's dizzy, syncopal, low blood pressure, those patients who are on oral steroids or inhaled steroids even, yeah? Absolutely. And again, the key differentiation is primary hypoadrenalism. They're hyperpigmented and they're hyperkalemic. That's actually an easier diagnosis to think of. But the patients with pituitary disease or the patients who are in withdrawal from oral or inhaled steroids, the only clue is the serum sodium is low and they are not feeling well. There's nothing else. Okay. The potassium is usually normal or low in that situation and they're not hyperpigmented. And in that case, you might want to give the so-called stress dose of steroids. And There's nothing wrong with that. I would, if you're thinking of, of it, you send off a random serum cortisol, and then you give them some dexamethasone, and they'll be safe. 
Next, we're going to go back to the case and look at the specific management for this patient. Okay, so let's move on to the management of this 82-year-old woman that I presented at the top of the podcast. Now, this patient had a low potassium as well as a low sodium. And my understanding is that if you correct the hypokalemia, that this will help correct the hyponatremia as well. Can you explain to our listeners how this works and how do you incorporate this into your management of hyponatremia in the emergency? Sure. So it's a really important concept, which is when you give potassium, it will almost immediately go intracellular. It has to be exchanged with another cation. It's going to be exchanged with intracellular sodium. So when you give the patient one milliequivalent of potassium, it's the same as giving them one milliequivalent of sodium. It'll have the same impact on their serum tonicity. So the math, actually, I've done it for many years. It works out pretty simple. If you give the patient one tablet of 20 milliequivalents of potassium, and the math works out that that's going to change the patient's serum sodium concentration, depending on their size and weight, of course, by about 0.5 or 0.6 millimoles per liter. Assuming the patient's not vomiting, I would give her KDER, 20 milliequivalents, one tablet PO, three times a day. And over the course of 24 hours, I would anticipate a change in the serum sodium concentration of one to two milliequivalents, which is quite safe. Okay. In the emergency room, we often use KCL elixir. Okay. What dose would you recommend we give? If you wanted to use KCL elixir, I think 10 milliequivalents every four hours would accomplish the same thing quite safely. If the patient needs IV potassium because they're vomiting or unable to swallow, you just need to factor that into your correction. So I would give it in the smallest possible volumes over the longest possible time. Can you give us an example? Sure. I guess in this, let's pretend this first patient couldn't take anything by mouth for whatever reason. She's going to need some maintenance crystalloid anyway, so she doesn't become more hypovolemic. Be totally reasonable to give her normal saline or Ringer's lactate at 50, 50 milliliters per hour with 40 milliequivalents per liter of potassium chloride. And overall, that will probably change the serum sodium concentration by a couple of millimoles over the course of the day. You still need to monitor the urine output as discussed. Got it. So just a quick review here. Correcting the hypo-K will help to correct the hyponatremia. And there's three options you have. You can use KDUR, one tablet, P-O-T-I-D, and this will raise the serum sodium concentration by about one to two millimoles per liter over 24 hours, which is quite safe. Or alternatively, you can use 10 millimoles of KCL elixir Q4H, P-O or via NG tube. And this, although it tastes disgusting, works a little bit faster than the KDUR. And finally, if your patient's vomiting or is NPO for whatever reason, you can give IV ringer's lactate at 50 milliliters per hour with 40 milliequivalents of KCL per liter. We'll have this all in the show notes for you to review. Next, Dr. Bamel is going to explain how to assess for the possibility of cerebral edema in those patients with severe hyponatremia. Dr. Bamel, in assessing the patient with severe hyponatremia, Besides the general clinical condition of the patient, how do you assess whether the patient's suffering from cerebral edema or not? You know, this is one of the most feared complications of severe hyponatremia. How do you sort that out in the eMERGE? Yeah, so there's no perfect test, but uh, in addition to your clinical gestalt, you can use bedside ultrasound to detect an acute rise in intracranial pressure by looking for dilation of the optic nerve sheath. A width greater than 5 millimeters is considered abnormal. Uh, in the past, it's uh, it's helped me diagnose papilledema and other causes like pseudotumor cerebri or uh, an optic neuritis. So it's certainly better than I was mentioning earlier, my fundoscopic skills. You can also do a head CT um, and look for effacement of the sulci. And abnormal CT does not rule out cerebral edema because it can lag behind the clinical findings. Absolutely. Dr. Atchels, this patient's hyponatremia may be in part due to SIADH as a side effect from the hydrochlorothiazide and maybe the SSRI as well. How do you know that in the emergency department? Like, How can you determine in the ED which patients with hyponatremia have SIADH as the cause? Now, that's a very good question, and the answer is it's very difficult, and it doesn't matter. So all you have to do in the emergency department is go back to the principles we've discussed, make sure their volume status is uh, maintained, don't let the hyponatremia get worse, and make sure they don't overcorrect. 
and let the internist fuss over the volume status and the SIADH. It can take days or weeks to figure that out. But the patient will be fine as long as you don't let them get hypovolemic, as long as you don't let them get worse by drink, letting them drink too much water or giving them hypotonic fluids. They'll be fine. Got it. Okay. So SIADH is a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a so it takes a while to sort that out. That's where we earn our money. The three days of head scratching. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Now, how about those patients? I, I learned in medical school, if they've got some major lung problem or some major brain problem, you should be thinking about SIADH. Yeah, I think that's right. So if you wanted to get started, you would do a chest x-ray and a CT head might have already been done. That would be a reasonable starting point and a medication review, you'll usually find the answer. Okay. All right. So sometimes we can look smart for the internist if, if it's an obvious one, but often it's not. So the European guidelines just recently came out and they were talking about the indications of hypertonic saline. And they mentioned that not only severely hyponatremic patients and really sick patients that should be getting hypertonic saline, but also patients who have only moderately low sodiums and patients who are only moderately sick from hyponatremia, you can consider giving hypertonic saline. What would you say the indication for hypertonic saline is in the emergency department? My view is you should only treat severe symptoms, life-threatening symptoms with hypertonic saline. So seizures, coning, or cerebral edema that's causing a coma. I would not give hypertonic saline if the patient is sleepy but rousable or if they're confused. There's no reason to do that. They're the patients. The most important thing is to prevent them from drinking more water and to prevent them from getting hypotonic fluids, and they will get better. Okay, so for those patients, you go slow. It's really only for the really sick patients that you that you suggest giving hypertonic saline. And you have to be pretty sure that their seizures or their decreased level of consciousness is due to the hyponatremia and not something else, right? Because it's far more common in an ED to have a seizing patient from a bleed in the brain or METs to the brain or alcohol withdrawal and who happens to also have hyponatremia than it is from just directly from the hyponatremia itself. So let's go back to the case. We've got our 82-year-old woman who was sort of stuporous, volume contracted, and had a serum sodium of 104, as well as a low potassium. She's had some normal saline, and you've seen a few other patients in the interim. Your shift is going well, and you're feeling on top of the world. Then you hear an overhead call, Dr. Bamel, stat to bed six. As you turn the corner and the patient comes into view, you see that they're seizing, full-on tonic-clonic seizure. How would you manage this patient now? Yeah, so I would ask for um, 3% hypertonic saline, and I think it comes in 250 cc bags at Sunnybrook in particular. I mean, I'd start by giving 150 cc's over about 5 to 10 minutes and then reassess the patient. If they're still seizing, um, then I can give another bolus of 150 cc's, and that should raise their sodium by about 5 to 6 millimoles, which should get them out of the woods and improve their neurological symptoms. Yeah, totally support that. And just monitor their urine output, and if they, again, start developing water diuresis after that, you give them some DDAVP, and they'll be fine. So you give the 3% normal saline bolus over 5, 10, 20 minutes. You recheck the sodium after about 20 minutes, and you repeat it if the seizure persists. And the goal is to raise the serum sodium by about 5 millimoles per liter. Great. And then don't let it go up anymore for the rest of the day. And that's why monitoring the urine output and treating any water diuresis aggressively is extremely important. Okay, so let's say you have given two boluses of 150 cc's of hypertonic saline. What do you do with the IV lines after that, assuming that you've repeated the sodium and it's gone up by five? Sure. So obviously you need IV access in case there's ongoing emergencies. I would put normal saline in the lines. I would reduce them to the lowest possible rate, assuming the patient's otherwise hemodynamically stable. I would monitor the urine output, and if it goes up, I would give them DDAVP. An important reflex that I tell my residents is, as soon as you give patients like this DDAVP, you have to make them NPO. Because if you give DDAVP and you let the patient drink, they're going to be in serious, serious trouble. And write the no hypotonic fluid orders that we've discussed already. No D5W, no two-thirds in the third, no half-normal saline, because then you're really asking for trouble. Okay, I've been in the situation before where I've called for hypertonic saline and the nurses go scrambling around and there is no hypertonic saline in our department and they have to go to the ICU and the patient's seizing and I need it now. 
Dr. Etchells, are there any other options besides hypertonic saline for the patient who's seizing in front of you because of a low sodium? Sure. So you can use uh, an amp of sodium bicarbonate. Uh, it's a little more concentrated than hypertonic saline. If you do the math, giving 40 cc's of the 50 cc amp is going to essentially be the same as giving Dr. Bimel's 150 cc's of 3% normal saline. So in a pinch, I would recommend giving almost a complete amp of sodium bicarbonate over about five minutes. So the poor man's hypertonic saline is uh, almost an amp of bicarb. Yeah, but you have to do it a little slower because it's very hypertonic. Got it. Okay, we talked a little bit about SIADH and that it's not so important to make the diagnosis in the emergency department, but let's say you've got someone who's sort of obvious SIADH, they've got lung cancer and they're on hydrochlorothiazide and they're uvolemic and there's really no other reason. How do you manage these patients? So let's say you've got that lung cancer patient hydrochlorothiazide, and their sodium is 115, and they're maybe a little bit altered. How, how would you manage that situation? Sure. So always go back to the first principles. So always defend the intravascular volume as discussed. Then it's pretty simple. Don't let it get worse. And I just put the patients on a water restriction. And this is where you have to negotiate with the patients and make sure they understand what's wrong with them. The more you restrict the water, the faster the patient will feel better and the faster they'll get out of the hospital. So I go tell the patients, look, it's kind of up to you. I'm going to propose a 500 milliliter per day fluid restriction. You're not going to like it. You're going to feel that your mouth is dry. But if you drink water, you're going to get sicker and you're not going to leave here as quickly. And then they usually comply. A lot of patients keep asking for water because their mouths are dry. So I give them oral balance gel. And they, I say you can use it whenever you want, and then their mouths stay nice and moist, and then they stop asking for water. It's really important to look for medications that cause dry mouth and stop those if you can, and the patients stop asking. Those are some great practical pearls, great pearls. Let's continue with the case. So it's the holiday season, and there aren't any beds upstairs. So this 82-year-old woman, unfortunately, is still in your ED 48 hours later. You're called to the bedside again. The nurse tells you that this patient does not seem to be moving any of her limbs at all. She was agitated before, and she was trying to climb out of the bed, but now she's mute and lying perfectly still, but her vitals are totally stable. Dr. Bamel, what do you think's going on here, and what would you do to avoid any kind of worsening situation? So it sounds like this poor woman has had a stroke, uh, but since we're doing a talk on hyponatremia, it's uh, probably the rare and dreaded osmotic demyelination syndrome, ODS, formerly known as uh, central pontine myelinolysis, CPM. It can occur up to seven days after the uh, rapid and often inadvertent overcorrection of the sodium. It's a clinical diagnosis that needs to be made because uh, the CT findings, again, can, can take a while to appear. Uh, the theory is that the brain cells don't have time to adapt to their new hyperosmolar environment. And so water flushes out of the cells and they shrivel up and demyelinate. And the symptoms depend on which part of the brain is affected. So the most common place is the pons. That's where the name central pontimyelinolysis came from. And then they realized other parts of the brain started to become involved as well. And uh, like the cerebellum and the basal ganglia, and that's why the name was changed to osmotic demyelination syndrome or ODS. And these lesions can cause devastating neurological symptoms like ataxia, quadriplegia, cranial nerve palsies, and in the most extreme cases, it can cause locked-in syndrome, which uh, is where the patient is fully paralyzed but still cognitively intact. And I've never actually seen this in real life, but there's a great movie called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly um, that depicts this really well, and it's based on a true story. To the second part of your question, which is what would I do to avoid a worsening situation? And I think that, unfortunately, there's not much more I, that I could do to, to make this a situation worse for this poor elderly woman who now has locked-in syndrome from osmotic demyelination uh, syndrome. Uh, so I would just simply stop all fluids, call for help, and, and pray that she gets better. So this patient developed this syndrome because of rapid correction of the hyponatremia. Let's say it's not that dramatic, or even if it is that dramatic, what can you do besides stopping the fluids 
to correct the sodium back. Sure. So let's let's imagine that the patient's serum sodium is corrected 15 millimoles over the first 24 hours despite best efforts. And the question is always posed, maybe we should try and lower it again. Maybe that'll protect the patient's brain. I think it's highly speculative. The human studies on that are based on tiny numbers of patients. And it's been shown to maybe protect rats' brains, but we're not veterinarians. I would never do it myself because I think you're just asking for trouble. The most I would do would be to go back to our first principles. So always number one, defend the industry ask your volume. Number two, don't let the serum sodium get worse. Number three is to prevent it from correcting any faster. So in a patient whose serum sodium has gone up 15 millimoles over the first 24 hours, I would immediately give them DDAVP. I would make them NPO. I would stop giving them hypotonic fluids and see what happened. I would call a nephrologist in that situation for advice, but I personally would not try to lower the serum sodium again. I think it's risky. This unfortunate woman has already developed the syndrome. Which patients do we have to be especially careful about so that we don't induce ODS by correcting the hyponatremia too rapidly? In other words, which patients are at risk for central pontine myelinolysis or ODS? Yeah, so it's uh, generally the classic case would be a, a, an elderly female with chronic severe hyponatremia who's also hypokalemic and also malnourished. Hmm, kind of sounds like the case we had right off the top. So patients with chronic hyponatremia, hypokalemia, like an alcoholic who's malnourished and a low, low sodium. Absolutely. So when you do get that little old lady who's been drinking too much and they're hypo-K and hyponatremic, be careful of overcorrecting their sodium. If you want to do So Dr. Etchells, I've personally never given DDAVP in the emergency department. Can you just review for our listeners exactly what the indications are for DDAVP and when it's really important for maybe the emergency doctor to step in and actually do it? Sure. So the setting where you're going to use it is the hypovolemic, hyponatremic patient who's been given some intravenous crystalloid to restore their volume status, and now they've got a high urine output. So if the urine output is above 100 cc's per hour, you're then going to send a urine osmolality stat. If the urine osmolality is less than 100, you've proven that the patient is now having a spontaneous water diuresis. They're at risk of overcorrecting. So you should step in. It's very simple what to do. Make them NPO. Write an order to prevent any hypotonic fluids from being given. And then give DDAVP intravenously. DDVP is an extremely safe drug. The only bad thing that can happen is hyponatremia if they drink water. And that will buy you 8 to 12 hours of no problems. The patient will stop excreting water and they will be fine. And that 8 to 12 hours is probably all you need to get a friendly neighborhood nephrologist or internist to step in and deal with the rest of the patient. Great. So, Dr. Bamel, what do you think about giving DDAVP? Have, have you ever given it before? And if not... Based on what Dr. Etchell's saying here, is this something you think we should be doing in the emergency department? I think it depends on where you work. At Sunnybrook, it, Dr. Etchell's is, is right around the corner to ask for help and, and step in. Um, but if I certainly if I was working up north in Chaplow or Timmins where, you know, that's not the case, then, then yes, now I think I would feel comfortable to try it. Okay, so this is really the situation where you want to give DDAVP is if you don't have good backup, and if you're really worried that this patient is being overcorrected for whatever reason, maybe your sodium is taking a long time to come back and yeah. you've thought this patient was more hypovolemic than they actually are and you gave them a couple liters of fluid and then you realize that they've been way overcorrected and you're worried that they might start demyelating and explode their brain. This is when you really should step in as an emergency doctor and give DDAVP. Great. That's a huge practice changer for me. And nothing bad will happen to the patient as long as you make them NPO and write the order for no hypotonic fluids. There will be no downsides to giving it. 
So in my experience with having the unfortunate uh, experience of overcorrecting patients in the emergency room, uh, what generally happens is that you give fluids before you know what the sodium is because the patients come in, you know, vomiting and they're a bit tachycardic and your natural inclination is to give some fluid. Meanwhile, the patient is overcorrecting their sodium and peeing out all sorts of dilute urine that you're not measuring. So I think the important thing maybe is to try to make it more of a reflexive thing when you're giving fluid to have some sort of monitoring of urine output, because that's going to be the key in terms of knowing whether their ADH has shut off and they're just starting to overcorrect. So a lot of times when I'm reviewing these cases with the residents, they pull out the famous formula that tries to estimate the change in serum sodium concentration based on the tonicity of the fluid that you're infusing and the patient's total body water. I think that formula is completely useless, and I've deliberately chosen not to memorize it because it assumes no urine output. It even says that. Do not use this formula if the patient has urine output. Well, that's a useless formula because most of the patients have urine output. When you read the studies that use that formula, it'll show you that patients where you rely on that formula will routinely overcorrect. It's because you're monitoring the wrong thing. You have to monitor the urine output. I can't overemphasize it. Stick the Foley catheter in, write the order for urine output Q1H. If urine output greater than 100 cc's, send stat urine osmo and call me. I'll never go wrong. So that's a good point because... During my training, I was forced to learn this formula for my exam. And certainly in my first year of practice, I I tried to input the numbers and and come up with an intelligent uh, scheme to slowly correct the sodium and would inadvertently always overcorrect the sodium using that formula. The reality from the emergency department physician's perspective is You don't know what the serum sodium concentration is until several hours after you started resuscitating the patient. That's not your fault. The key is to recognize the situation. As soon as you find out that the serum sodium is low and you've been giving the patient intravenous crystalloid, the immediate next steps have to be insert a Foley catheter, fresh urine for urine osmo and sodium stat. And if there's going to be any delays in that, just make the patient NPO and give them DDVP and nothing bad will happen. No one knows what the serum sodium is when they're in triage. Yeah, yeah. And if their blood pressure is low, you got to treat it. If yeah. they're vomiting, you got to deal with it. Yeah. That's the correct management. Yeah, exactly. And the natural inclination is antiemetic yeah. plus fluid, right? That's like always it's just... the right answer. And usually yeah. people feel re- much better and you haven't done anything to their sodium, right? right? We're talking right. about it's a small. very small percentage right. of people that end up with this situation. Right. And it's just recognizing yeah. it and dealing with it when it happens and not feeling bad about it mm-hmm. is, the, is, the, is the main yeah. thing. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. On to case number two. A 22-year-old otherwise healthy man comes in after completing his first marathon and collapsing at the finish line. Surprisingly, his vitals are within normal limits, except for a sort of borderline blood pressure of 98 over 60 and a temp of 38 degrees Celsius. His GCS is 11 and he looks pale. His ECG shows normal sinus rhythm at 96 beats per minute. There's no ST changes, no blocks, no signs of hokum or Brugada, QT interval is normal. You give him a bolus of normal saline, and he's about to be whisked off to the radiology department for a CT of the head, and his sodium level comes back at 120. You wonder whether you should be giving him a saline bolus or not. So Dr. Bamel, what is the most likely thing that's causing this patient's hyponatremia, and how do you approach that? So the most likely cause of this patient's hyponatremia is probably exercise-associated hyponatremia, EAH, uh, which is an acute uh, cause of hyponatremia that occurs in endurance athletes where they drink more water than they can pee out. But wait, hold on a sec. Isn't that this guy's just been running a marathon? He's been sweating like a hog for maybe three hours. He's been running and sweating. Isn't this guy dehydrated? Well, that would be the cognitive trap. (laughs) Um, The thinking is that there's actually quite a big component of SIDH in these athletes, just from the sheer pain of having ran 42 kilometers. So uh, they actually aren't able to pee out the water that they're drinking during the race. And giving them isotonic fluid will just lead to more water retention and worsening of their hyponatremia. Wow. So this is counterintuitive. So this exercise-induced 
hyponatremia, the problem is too much water. And there's an impairment of actually being able to excrete it out by the kidneys because of inappropriate ADH secretion. Okay. So as opposed to your natural instinct to go give this patient fluid, how would you manage them in the ED? So it depends on how sick they are. In this patient who sounds pretty sick, then I would probably give them a bolus of 3% hypertonic saline, uh, about 100 cc's, and then go from there. If the patient had milder symptoms like lethargy, nausea, vomiting, then I would just fluid restrict them and let their bodies fix themselves. Eventually, the ADH will shut off, they will diurese, and their sodium will correct. Okay, so the big learning point here is don't assume quote, dehydration in these marathon runners. A lot of them are drinking way too much water while they're doing the marathon. And if anything, they should just be fluid restricted. If they're having a neurologic emergency right in front of you, then you can reach for the hypertonic saline. Otherwise, just fluid restrict and they should get better. I would just say that because of EAH, there's been a de-emphasis on overhydration at these races. Uh, for example, water stations are being placed further apart and athletes are told to just drink when they're thirsty. So um, there has been a big push in recognition of this important syndrome. Now, this is just one example of a patient who's had too much water, essentially. What are some other common clinical situations where we see a dilutional hyponatremia where the patients basically just ingest too much water and literally dilute their sodium concentrations down to a dangerous level? Ecstasy is a big one. The drug itself can cause SIADH. And on top of that, um, there tends to be a lot of drinking of beverages uh, while on this drug. And the two together um, can cause you to retain more water and dilute out the sodium. Uh, the other big one is psychogenic polydipsia, where patients with mental health issues compulsively drink tons and tons of water because God told them to or because the drugs make them very thirsty and also cause SIDH. The classic one is the psych patient who's already on, say, an SSRI, which can cause SIDH by itself, is also drinking tons and tons and tons of free water. And so it's this combination of the SIDH plus a sort of dilutional hyponatremia. Okay, so in marathon runners, kids are doing ecstasy at raves and such, and psych patients who are drinking liters and liters of water who are on SSRIs, those are the patients who you need to worry about this. And again, the treatment in most cases are just to fluid restrict. Again, stop the urge to give boluses of saline. Yeah, just to give an anecdote, a personal anecdote about this, it can be really tough, right? Because you have, for example, a young woman who comes in from a, from a party and she's been drinking all night and she's vomiting in the emergency room and you note that she's tachycardic but her blood pressure is normal and the nurses are asking you, can they give her some fluid and some and an antiemetic? Uh, and you just reflexively say, of course, yeah, that makes you know total sense. Why don't you do that? And then you come back later to find that she's hyponatremic because she took a drug she wasn't sure what it was called, and it turns out to be ecstasy. So it's just one of those clinical scenarios that are that are sometimes tough to uh, to sort out from the get go. The cool thing about hyponatremia is that it's one of the few things besides obvious fluid overload. You know, patients in acute decompensated heart failure, where we don't just give boluses of fluid. Well, there's probably not too many examples, and that's why we do it so often and so reflexively, right? And the case that I gave just sort of highlights that. And and just for all you eMERGE docs out there, that's why you shouldn't feel too bad when it happens, because medicine is a messy thing, and these things are bound to happen. And just remember sort of Dr. Dutchell's approach of once you recognize that that's happened, you know, measuring the urine output, getting the urine osmols, and, and perhaps give some DDAVP. And then don't feel bad about it. Yeah. And wait seven days for CPM to develop or not. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely corrected people way too quickly many times. Despite your best efforts, right? You're like, oh, yeah. oh they're tacky. They're vomiting. Of totally. course, it's a good idea to give fluids. On to case number three. A 53-year-old man with a history of CHF and chronic renal failure comes in with acute decompensated heart failure, satting not too badly, 88% on room air. He's on 100 milligrams of furosemide daily, as well as an ACE inhibitor and spironolactone. He's alert and oriented and doesn't seem to have much difficulty breathing. His JVP is up, he's got some crackles at the lung bases, 
and he's got moderate pitting edema up to his knees. After giving him a couple of sprays of nitroglycerin, he seems to be settling down, and then his sodium comes back, and it's 117. So Dr. Etchells, how would you manage this patient who's in CHF, has a sodium of 117, and is creatinine sky high? Sure. This is why we go into internal medicine. We love these cases. So clearly there's no neurologic emergency here, so we don't need to fret about the serum sodium as an urgent problem. So go back to first principles. First is defend the intravascular volume. Well, in this case, it's overly defended. He's got too much intravascular volume, so that's not a problem. In fact, we need to get rid of some of his volume. Second principle is don't let the serum sodium get any lower. So same principle. In this case, I would make the patient NPO at least overnight. Principle number three is actually not a big problem for these patients. It's very hard for them to overcorrect, and I'll explain why in a second. And then the cause is obvious. So let's go back to the first principle. So he's hypervolemic. Therefore, the first most important thing to do is saline lock all intravenouses. Then I would give the patient some furosemide. So wait, hold on there yeah. for one second. Yeah. This patient has a sodium of 117, yeah. and they're already on 100 milligrams of furosemide at home. Yeah. Isn't partly the reason why their sodium is so low is because they're on such a high dose of furosemide? No, the reason why their serum sodium is low is because they're still drinking water and they can't excrete it. Furosemide is, in and of itself isn't causing the hyponatremia. It's different from hydrochlorothiazide. There's no problem with giving more furosemide Absolutely to this patient. Not. It's actually the correct management. And a general rule of thumb is when you give furosemide, the patient pees out half normal saline. For every liter of urine that the patient makes, they're peeing out about 500 milliliters of free water. So it's very hard for these patients to overcorrect too quickly. Simply put, these patients who are fluid overloaded that come in with a low sodium, you fluid restrict them and give them more furosemide. Yeah, fluid restrict, sodium restrict, and give furosemide. Great, easy. So let's bring it home with a review of Dr. Etchell's approach to hyponatremia. Number one, is there a neurologic emergency? Is the patient seizing or is there cerebral edema with coning or coma? If so, give hypertonic saline. 100 to 150 cc's of hypertonic saline over five minutes with a repeat of the serum sodium in about 20 minutes with a goal of increasing the serum sodium by about five. You can repeat the hypertonic saline once if you need to. Then there's the four principles of hyponatremia management. Number one, defend the intravascular volume. Number two, prevent worsening hyponatremia. Number three, prevent rapid overcorrection. And number four, ascertain the cause. So in terms of defending the intravascular volume, if the patient's definitely hypovolemic, low BP or postural drop more than 20, give IV ringers lactate 250 to 500 milliliter bolus. Remember that in the case of hemodynamic instability, the need for rapid fluid resuscitation overrides the risk of an overly rapid increase in serum sodium concentration. If the patient's hypervolemic, just make them MPO and give them furosemide. The second principle of the management of hyponatremia is preventing worsening hyponatremia by fluid restriction. Lock the IV and make the patient NPO. Simple. The third principle, prevent rapid overcorrection. Now, this will occur almost exclusively in patients with hypovolemic hyponatremia after the hypovolemia is treated. So, number one, monitor the urine output with a Foley catheter. If the urine output is more than 100 milliliters per hour, send fresh urine osmolality. If the urine osmolality is less than 100, give one microgram of DDAVP, making sure that the patient's fluid restricted. If it's over 100, then just sit tight. Remember that the general rule for correction of hyponatremia is the six rule. That is, six millimoles in the first six hours for severely symptomatic patients, or six millimoles per liter in the first 24 hours for mild symptoms. And lastly, the fourth principle of the management of hyponatremia is a search for the cause. And Dr. Bamel does it this way. You look at the chief complaint, if there's gastro symptoms or excessive beer drinking or there's no intake or the patient has a lot of pain, then that could be their cause of their hyponatremia. Then you look at the meds. If they're on hydrochlorothiazides or SSRIs or some other cause of SIDH, that's the cause of hyponatremia. 
If they're suffering from a disease that causes obvious hypervolemic hyponatremia, like CHF, renal failure, or liver failure, then that's probably the cause of the hyponatremia. If they have lung or brain lesions, then they probably have SIADH as a cause. And lastly, look at the labs. Hyperglycemia can cause pseudo-hyponatremia, and hyper-K in the setting of hyponatremia should make you think of adrenal insufficiency. This entire algorithm will be in the show notes on the blog post and in the written summaries, so you might want to review it there to make it stick. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. I hope to see you all at the EMU conference at May. That's Emergency Medicine Update Conference in May in Toronto. So until next time, take it easy.